You are listening to Season 1 of Serial Sisters. I'm Jamie. And I'm Tess. Today we're discussing the disappearance and murder of a United States Army veteran and the dangerous man she met online. This is The Tangled Web. The victim in today's story is Maribel Ramos. She was born in Mexico on November 22nd, 1976. Shortly after she was born, her mother moved with her to California. Seven years later, Maribel's younger sister, Lucy, was born. Their mom, Marina, was a single parent. So like many single parents trying to make ends meet, she worked two jobs, often leaving Maribel responsible for caring for Lucy. Maribel was close with her family all the way up to her death, and maybe the role that she played in caring for Lucy early on is part of the reason why. Although I will say this, we grew up in the 90s when it was truly no big deal to leave your kids home alone all day, especially in the summer when kids were out of school and parents were working. And Tess, I'm sure you remember that we had some pretty major knockdown drag out fights when we were left home alone as kids. Yeah, I remember that. It's like you wait to see, you know, the car pull out of the driveway and then you're like, it's go time. <laughs> and, then, and then you scramble to like make up right before they get back. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, if you say a word, I'll kill you. <laughs> yeah, you better keep your mouth shut. <laughs> so anyway, we got along great as children, as you can see. <laughs> um, and if there are any parents of siblings who fight constantly, maybe this will give you hope that someday they'll get along. Um, it only took us moving to opposite coast. Yeah, but, I got out of there. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Lucy described her older sister as caring, positive, supportive, and loving. She also said that Maribel was headstrong and a bit of a tomboy. After high school, Maribel worked as a Kmart security guard and aspired to have a career in the historically male-dominated field of law enforcement, but she was concerned about being able to afford to become a certified law enforcement officer. I tried to find information about police academy tuition in California just for reference, but according to the academy.ca.gov, costs are provided at the time of enrollment and if it's like some other states I'm assuming the fees paid by the student also depend on whether they've been um, hired by law enforcement agency pending their graduation and whether they're getting any support in that way. Either way at least today it requires a significant time investment typically Monday through Friday from 8 to 5 for 22 weeks so training basically becomes your full-time job and if you're also financially responsible for supporting yourself while going through the academy, you really need to have the excess funds to be able to do so while you're going through the program. So she decided to do what many people do post high school when money is a concern, and she decided to enlist in the Army. Her first day was August 8, 2001, just weeks before 9-11. She was almost 25 years old at the time. 
And let me say that while I was never in the military, nor was I ever considering it, I was in high school at the time of 9-11, and I feel like joining the military pre-9-11 and post-9-11 were two very different decisions. Before 9-11, when we studied about times of war, it felt so foreign to me that I really couldn't grasp the idea of Americans being involved in a war, let alone someone joining the military knowing that they'd actually be going to war. I know that may sound naive, particularly to some of our older or younger listeners who have never really known a world without it, but people around our age will understand what I mean. I'm not suggesting that Maribel wasn't committed to serving her country. I'm just saying that this was basically a stepping stone for her, so it was a path to becoming a law enforcement officer, and that she had no idea what she would actually be signing up for at the time. Yeah, I agree. I was actually in college when 9-11 happened, and I remember, you know, I was still, what, 18, 19, but I thought I was so grown up, you know, and then when this happened, all of a sudden the world felt so large, you know, and it was scary, and like you said, I'm not doubting anyone's intentions for joining, but I don't think at the time, a lot of them, especially people that I had graduated with just a year or two before, had anticipated stepping into such a large piece of history with so much going on at the time. And it, it, it's, it, it, yeah, it was a big deal. So anyway, 9-11 changed everything. Maribel was deployed to Iraq and quickly rose from private first class to sergeant. She was no longer there just to earn money for school. She felt it was her duty to serve her country. When her first tour was over, she re-enlisted. She served tours in South Korea and in Iraq as a logistics and transportation specialist. She took great pride in being a soldier and a female soldier at that. But according to Lucy, Maribel didn't talk much about her experiences when she returned from deployment. Right. So after eight years of service, Maribel decided not to re-enlist in the Army and instead returned to live near family in Santa Ana, California at the age of 32. And her mental health suffered greatly upon her return. While she was overseas, a fellow sergeant was killed during a large weapons transport mission, and she was experiencing major survivor's guilt and PTSD. She lived with her boyfriend, Chris Carlin, who had also been in the military, and maybe that's why she found it a little easier for her to open up to him as opposed to her other friends and family, but she would sometimes talk to him about how she struggled to cope with what she had experienced in Iraq. And although she was going to therapy and taking medication, Chris said that she would cry often. And like many veterans who suffer from PTSD, you know, like loud, sudden noises would startle her. Yeah, so Chris really didn't think it was a good idea for Maribel to pursue a career in law enforcement anymore. He was very concerned, actually, when she began looking into the criminal justice program at Cal State Fullerton. He didn't think it was a good idea for her to put herself in another position where she'd be on the front lines, but she still had the desire to protect and serve through a career in law enforcement. And this caused a rift between them, and ultimately she ends the relationship and moves out in the summer of 2009. 
she moves into Marina, her mother's home for the time being. And that fall, she starts taking courses to obtain her degree in criminal justice and joins the Student Veterans Association on campus. It's therapeutic for her, and she takes pride in knowing that she's able to help other veterans by showing them that there's no shame in talking about their experiences with trauma and PTSD. And there's one man, though, that seems to be a little too fixated on Maribel. Raymond Bustamante is a fellow member of the Student Veterans Associations, and he's often caught just staring at her or following her and just sort of conveniently shows up wherever she is on campus and just makes her uncomfortable in general. Yeah, and his name will come up again later, by the way. Tragically, though, Maribel is only in school for about a month before Marina is diagnosed with colon cancer. She requires around-the-clock care, so Maribel takes a break from school to care for her mom. The cancer is unfortunately very aggressive, and Marina passes away three months later. Maribel has already been struggling to cope with her breakup and with PTSD, and this is another devastating blow to her. But she decides to keep going and gets right back to school to work on her criminal justice degree. By this time, she's 33 years old, and family has said that she was insecure about being a college student later in life. As a side note, if you're listening to this and you're feeling like you're too old to go for your dreams, do it anyway. I went to college right after high school, but I often think that I'd make a much better college student now because I understand more about what will make me happy professionally, financially, and otherwise. In fact, I say all the time that if money were no object, I'd probably go back to school now and study something different just because we should never be too old to learn new things. Um, Anyway, that's my PSA for the day. No, and I agree, and I say this all the time now that, like, asking a 17, 18, 19-year-old to choose your career and be prepared to, like, fully commit to that career and the financial responsibility that comes with education for that career is it seems like a lot to take on for that that age for sure Uh, I mean we're still learning what we want to (laughs) do definitely (laughs) but to your point Maribel was a great student at 33 years old and three years after the death of her mother Maribel decides at the age of 36 that she's tired of living alone She places an ad on Craigslist seeking a roommate to live with her in her apartment and receives a response from a man by the name of Kwong Chol Joy, who goes by KC for short. He's a 52-year-old chemist who has recently relocated to Southern California from Tennessee for a job. And he says, you know, he's been recently laid off, which probably explains why he's looking for a roommate, but that he does have enough savings to cover his rent until he finds work. He also notes that he would love to have a roommate who loves dogs, which works out great since Maribel has a little chihuahua named Mia, who is her constant companion, according to her sister. I have to admit that a 30-something-year-old woman and a 50-something-year-old man seem like a strange roommate matchup. That seemed kind of odd to me at first, but If I were looking for a roommate, someone who includes their love of dogs in their ad would probably be my pick too. 
It isn't just me who found the pairing odd, though. Maribel's cousin, Frank, said that he thought it was a little weird and had just assumed that she'd be looking for a female roommate. But her family knew she was tough and could hold her own, so they weren't worried about him. It actually worked out really well. Casey is tidy and always pays rent on time, and he also has a small, well-behaved dog of his own. Maribel and Casey hit it off and become great friends. Not only do they live together, but they often go on hikes together, watch movies together, and even spend time together with Maribel's family. Casey even tutored Lucy's daughter, Giselle, in math. According to Lucy, Casey seemed like a great companion for her sister, but Maribel is also looking for a different type of companionship at that point in her life. So she joins Plenty of Fish, hoping to make a romantic connection amid the many other things going on in her life. She's a student. She also works at Cal State Fullerton. She's on a recreational softball team with her cousins. By the way, they said she was completely committed and never missed a game. I have no idea how the girl even had time to date, but she does end up making a connection with a man named Paul Lopez. He gets along well with the people in her life and actually winds up joining the softball team with her. It doesn't take her long to realize, though, that while he's a great guy, he isn't looking for anything serious. So she tells Lucy that she doesn't think he's going to be a good match for her after all, but they continue seeing each other casually on and off while she's still looking for a romantic connection online. This is when she meets 41-year-old photographer Alan De Herrera on Plenty of Fish. They spoke on the phone a couple of times and made a date in person to meet on Cinco de Mayo, which if you're not aware, that's May 5th. And that date never takes place. Maribel is last seen alive on Thursday, May the 2nd. Casey realizes on May the 3rd that Maribel hadn't come home the night before. He texted Lucy around 10 a.m. to let her know, and Lucy tells him not to worry about it. She's 36 years old by this time. She's a grown woman, and her sister basically says that if she doesn't want to come home, it's not his business if she wants to stay out all night. Lucy sends Maribel a casual Happy Friday text about an hour later. They usually talked every day, so this wasn't the result of Casey's call. In fact, Lucy wasn't really worried at all at that point. But when neither of them have heard from her by that evening, Casey phoned police. Later on that night, Maribel actually misses her softball game, which, like we said, she never misses those. And this causes her family to kind of panic at that point because it's just so out of character for her. Detective Joey Ramirez with the Orange Police Department receives calls from the family and he instantly felt like something wasn't right. So he got to work on the case right away. And by the way, you've probably heard that searches aren't conducted on missing persons cases involving adults unless they've been missing for at least 24 hours. And the idea here is that adults have the right to disappear if they want to. And in most cases, I mean, they don't have a legal obligation to tell anyone where they're going. It's such a common practice that some people actually believe that this is the law, but that isn't the case. 
if a person is reported missing and the responding agency determines that, you know, for whatever reason, something is not right, they can begin their investigation as soon as they think it's necessary. Yeah, we saw an example of that just a couple of weeks ago when we covered the disappearance of Denise Amber Lee. It's worth pointing out again because I've personally heard too many instances where someone wasn't reported missing for at least 24 hours because their loved one assumed that they had to wait the full 24 hours to report them missing. There is no way to know whether their stories would have played out differently if they had reported it earlier. And hopefully none of our listeners will ever have to go through anything like this. But if you do, it's just just worth noting that you don't have to wait 24 hours to let someone know that something's wrong. By the way, Tess, um, I'd like to go on the record saying that please do not wait 24 hours to report me missing if you think something's wrong. <laughs> okay, I won't, unless I had something to do with your disappearance, of course. <laughs> Great. At least this is recorded. This is recorded. Great. So, police go to Maribel's home to see if anything appears to be out of the ordinary. The house is dark and the doors and windows are locked. There are no signs of a struggle. Her cell phone, keys, and wallet are all missing, which are things most adults would take with them if they were going to leave the house. So this seems like she's maybe left on her own. But some things you'd expect someone to take on a longer trip were not missing, like her toothbrush, her purse, and even her car. Well, and even her dog, Mia. We've talked before about how much we love our dogs, and all of you dog owners know that you do not just go away for an evening without making arrangements for your dog. Lucy drives over to her sister's house, and she said that she was so concerned by this time that she barely even remembers the drive. She was expecting the worst-case scenario, like finding Maribel's dead body in her bedroom. But instead, the bedroom is empty, which I'm sure was a relief. KC is outside talking to police at this point about how unusual it is for Maribel not to let him know where she is or when she'll be home. The following day, Lucy takes to social media and creates a Facebook page dedicated to bringing her sister home. The family makes flyers as well and begins distributing them around town. Giselle, Maribel's 14-year-old niece, has just learned that her aunt is missing, and both she and Lucy are pretty inconsolable at this point. Lucy is just expecting to get the worst news at any time, almost like she knew in her gut that her sister must be dead. Desperate for a place to start, police began searching hospitals, accident reports for neighboring counties, security cameras for places nearby where she might have gone, but they just keep coming up empty. The only thing they were able to find was a surveillance clip from the apartment complex where she lived. On the last night she was seen alive, cameras capture her dropping off rent through the door slot of the apartment manager's office. She doesn't appear to be under duress, and there doesn't appear to be anyone nearby. It just seems completely ordinary, even down to how she was dressed. She's wearing, like, gray lounge pants, a black tank top, sandals, and she's even got her hair pulled back in a ponytail, like, pretty much exactly how I'd be dressed if I remembered rent's due tomorrow and needed to just drop it off real quick in the evening after I've been hanging out around the house. Things are about to take a really bizarre turn, though. 
and on Yelp of all places. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. On May 8th, Maribel's friend Emily posts to a Yelp thread that her friend has been missing since May the 2nd. In case you're not familiar with Up, it's basically an app where you can read customer reviews of local businesses. It's great if you're like traveling and want to find a restaurant nearby, for example. I have not been able to find anything that points to any other use for the site. And believe me, I tried. I went down a rabbit hole trying to find out if that was at all normal to do. But I mean, even if you click on Yelp.com, the company says of itself, quote, Yelp connects people with great local businesses, end quote. So I'm sure you're wondering why Emily took to Yelp. And I wish I could tell you, but I have no idea. All I can guess is that they were just desperate and trying to put the word out anywhere that they could to get Maribel back. But what is even more odd than Emily posting there is that other people started to chime in on this thread as well, namely Casey Joy. And what he writes, well, you just need to hear it. Tess, I'm going to ask you to read his response. Yeah, it gets weird. So on May 13th, and so this would be 11 days after Maribel's disappearance, Casey responds to Emily's Yelp post and says, I am Maribel's roommate. She is my BFF and my only family. She is absolutely the best woman I have ever met. We had so much fun together. I miss her so much. She always knew that I would give my life for her without any hesitation. Then he goes on to say, police forensic teams searched this apartment five times with the police dog. They confiscated my computer, hard drive, cell phone, car, and took several items. They contacted everyone on my phone list and I don't know when I will get my properties back. These are a major inconvenience, but this doesn't matter. I miss Maribel and that really makes me depressed and stressed out big time. In another post on this same thread, he mentions that he was at Maribel's candlelight vigil and that she is the only beneficiary of his $250,000 life insurance policy. Yeah, so let's just call this what it is. It's weird. I've had roommates. You've had roommates. You never know how you're going to react to someone you care about going missing, but I think we can agree that this isn't something you'd expect someone to say about their missing roommate, right? Like, of course you're going to be upset, but to go into how your roommate is your only family and how you give your life for them in a Yelp thread of all places, it's just strange. It And I've never had a roommate, I mean, I guess other than my husband, where I'm going to leave them $250,000 in life insurance money. That's weird to me. I don't think I'm worth $250,000 in life insurance money, but <laughs> it just seems like a lot of information to be sharing with the public. Like, hey, everybody, I'm the roommate. Here I am. 
and they've taken all my things. Basically, they're just kind of really looking into me right now. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And actually, other Yelp commenters pointed that out in the thread. They also pointed out that he was using past tense, even though nobody knew for sure yet that Maribel wasn't still alive. There were several exchanges in this thread, and we won't go into all of them here, but we'll have them posted on Facebook and the album corresponding with today's episode. But as strange as this exchange seems, Casey wasn't a native English speaker, so I guess it's possible that the message he intended to convey got lost in translation. Still desperate for answers, police bring Maribel's on-again, off-again boyfriend, Paul, in for questioning. He drove a truck for a company that had GPS installed on all their vehicles, so they were able to confirm pretty quickly that Paul hadn't been anywhere near her apartment around the time that she disappeared. Not only that, but surveillance cameras put Paul at his apartment complex from around midnight on that night and until you know, the rest of the night through the morning. This is an example of someone having an ironclad alibi. I guess you could say he was lucky that between the GPS and the cameras, it was pretty easy for police to rule him out and determine that there's no way he committed this crime. But Paul did let them know that she'd been in an argument recently with KC. Right. So remember in the Craigslist ad um, how KC said he was out of work, but he had a lot of savings to cover his rent for a while well apparently that savings ran out and he had gotten behind on his rent and maribel wasn't having that she was ready to kick him out so that didn't go well and paul had been on the phone with maribel during part of the argument that maribel and casey had and put paul on the speakerphone during part of this argument and casey wasn't going to leave quietly and Paul yelled through the speakerphone so that Casey could hear that if he wasn't out by the next morning, that Paul would be there to put him out. But, I mean, would Casey really kill Maribel over rent? Plus, there's all these other men in Maribel's life to look at, too. So, remember, there was Alan, the photographer that she was supposed to go on the date with, the Cinco de Mayo date from later that week. So, detectives had to track him down, but just like Paul they were able to confirm his alibi pretty quickly as well. His cell phone records indicated he'd been in San Diego at the time on a photography assignment. They also questioned her ex-boyfriend, Chris, but he too had an alibi. He was on a military assignment at the time. So five days after Maribel goes missing, a tip comes in from Cal State Fullerton. It's a student providing information about someone who was stalking Maribel. It was Raymond Bustamante, that student from the Student Veterans Association who seemed to always be following her. This feels like it could be a pretty solid lead, but when police look into him, once again, this guy has a solid alibi. He was living in Japan at the time, so he wasn't even in the country when Maribel disappeared. Yeah, and you know this had to be frustrating for authorities working the case. On one hand, it's great because they're not spending a lot of time going down dead-end roads since they're able to eliminate these men pretty quickly. On the other hand, there doesn't seem to be anyone who had any motive and opportunity to hurt Maribel. That is, except Casey Joy. 
Detectives have just uncovered a 911 call that Maribel placed 11 days before she disappeared. She wants to make sure the call is recorded, and she says that if anything happens to her, she's just warning them that she'll fight for her life and she'll kill him. When pressed, Maribel tells the dispatcher that the person she's afraid of is her roommate, Casey. This is kind of vague, so I honestly don't know what to make of it, but Tess, you heard the call. What did you think of it? It was a really kind of strange call, and to be honest, I thought it sounded like maybe Maribel was intoxicated. I mean, she was definitely weepy and sounded nervous on this call, and I don't know if she was intoxicated or, if, you know, if that was the case at all, and if it is, that doesn't mean that she wasn't in trouble. But law enforcement had to go out to this apartment to check things out. And Casey just kind of laughs off this whole call, just says, you know, she and I have had too much to drink. And, you know, Maribel started yelling at him about how she wasn't attracted to him and didn't want to be with him. And I guess just playing it off like their drinking got out of hand and caused her odd behavior, but that things were completely fine. But it turns out Casey had actually developed a crush on Maribel. You can call it an obsession. When Maribel told him that he was too old for her, he'd actually spent $12,000 trying to make his eyes look younger. He'd also declared his love for Maribel to Lucy, who was like, oh, this is just not good. Yeah, and by the way, I don't know what people do that cost $12,000 to make their eyes look younger. Was that like a Botox situation or? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure Maribel would have preferred that he pay rent, but <laughs> this is how he chose to spend his savings, I'm that's, guessing. That's true. That that explains why the, why the rent stopped being on time. Yeah, you know, and that may be why she was so angry that he wasn't paying his rent. She's like, dude, seriously? You spent $12,000 to have your eyes done, and now you're two months behind on rent. (laughs) But hey, I gotta get it. You gotta preserve your youth somehow. (laughs) Right. But none of this is looking good for Casey. He's been using a computer at the Orange County Public Library, and detectives have tried to get close enough to see what he's been looking at online, as in, like, physically being in the room with them, trying to, like, I guess, look over his shoulder. Uh, But that doesn't really work out. So they move across the street and use like a special software to tap into the computer he's using in real time, which Ramirez said is a very rarely used tactic. At first, there really isn't much to see. He checks his email, applies for a job, but then he performs two very eerie searches. The first is, can a cell phone be tracked if it's turned off? And then, how long does it take a human body to decay? And listen, I'm a fiction writer. We're true crime podcasters, so believe me, we know that sometimes people search for very weird things for very innocent reasons. But that isn't all. He goes onto the Facebook page Lucy created and sees that an awareness walk has been organized to take place at Peter's Canyon. Then he looks up Peter's Canyon on Google Maps and scrolls over to a remote area just a couple miles from there where the walk is taking place and he zooms in. 
Before Casey has even left the library, authorities are on their way to Majeska Canyon to search the area where he was paying extra close attention to, on a screen. Within an hour of their search, Maribel's body is found covered by rocks. Dental records confirm that it's her. This all takes place on May 17th, just two weeks after Maribel was reported missing. KC is brought in for questioning and pressed for more information without being told that she's even been found. He becomes flustered and attempts to leave, but he's quickly placed under arrest. When they arrest him, they find that he's wearing her dog tag. Ugh, I can't even imagine, like, the audacity of this guy. On May 21st, just four days after his arrest, and against the advice of his attorney, KC gives an exclusive interview to KCAL 9's Stacy Butler. And from behind bars, he said that Maribel's family knows that he took care of her and would never lay a hand on her. And even more bizarre and disgusting, he speaks as if he's part of her family, saying, our family is totally broken apart by this. In July of 2014, a jury found him guilty of second-degree murder. He's sentenced to 15 years to life and maintains his innocence. Casey filed an appeal, but his original conviction has been upheld. Maribel found constant companionship in her dog, Mia. And as I mentioned in the episode, this is something that is totally relatable to both Tess and me because we're both dog lovers and we think they make such great companions. So in honor of Maribel, I wanted to let you know about an organization I recently learned about that matches veterans with service dogs in upstate South Carolina and Western North Carolina. By the way, I'm not being paid to say anything about them. And in fact, I didn't even contact the organization to let them know that I was doing this in advance. We just known from the time that we started this podcast that we didn't want to turn someone's tragedy into just a few moments of entertainment. We wanted to try to use victim's story to create some positive change in the world. So if you live in North Carolina or South Carolina, or if you just want to help an organization that helps veterans who suffer from PTSD and other mental illness find companionship and emotional support in a dog, visit sd4v.org where you can learn more and donate to the cause. Again, that's sd, the number four, v.org. Or if you're like me and live on the West Coast, you can support the California-based nonprofit Shelter to Soldier. And like Jamie said, we aren't getting paid to mention them. We aren't affiliated with these organizations. But we do know the emotional value of having a furry companion and believe in the mission. So if you want to donate or learn more about Shelter to Soldier, visit sheltertosoldier.org. And we'll link them on our Facebook page along with photos and sources from today's episode. Please continue listening to hear a list of the sources read aloud at the end of the episode, by the way. One more thing before we go. If you follow us on social media, then you know we've just announced a scary stories contest. If you've ever been interested in having your writing published, or if you just love a good scary story, we want to hear from you. We're really excited about doing a Halloween special. We both really love telling scary stories. 
I'm really excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Go to facebook.com slash Serial Sisters for more information about how to enter this contest because like Tessa, we're super stoked. We really want to hear your stories and be on the lookout for details about the Halloween special this fall. We'll be back next Wednesday with another brand new episode and we'll talk to you then. Sources used to produce this episode include NBCLosAngeles.com, NYDailyNews.com, OCRegister.com, LosAngeles.CBSLocal.com, LATimes.com, DailyDot.com, ABC7News.com, DailyMail. .co.uk archive.org patch.com casetext.com and the TV show Web of Lies episode title Control Alt Delete